Our gracious Father, we thank you that you give us not only the opportunity, but the means by which we can run to you. Because you tell us in your word that we can come by your Son. We can come to your throne with boldness and that you will not turn us away. So, Father, as we come this morning and we retain an attitude of worship as we approach you through your word, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, that he would guide us, that he would teach us, that he would move in our hearts and our minds this morning, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So today we will begin to look at the ministry of John the Baptist. We have spent uh, basically the last two months looking at the first two chapters of the book of Luke, where we focused very, very much on all the things that surrounded the birth of Jesus. Today, we are really jumping ahead, right? The last time we saw John... He had just been born. So we're a good 29 years ahead, uh, give or take. Last week, we saw Jesus at 12 years old. So this is a good 17, 18 years after that. So big time jump um, as far as history is concerned. John the Baptist's ministry was one of repentance. It was a ministry that is meant to point the way to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is exactly what John said in the book of John, different John, that's the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, but in John 1.29. So with that in mind, let's read our text for today, and we will dive in. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idorea, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized him, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do? He answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Now, if you keep reading, it's a bit of an odd spot to stop. But I looked into going all the way through verse 20, and we would have been here till next Sunday, so I decided... We would stop there, and we'll pick it up there next week. In the first two verses, Luke really wanted us to know when this began. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate, being governor of Judea, Herod, being Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Idorea in the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, while Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. We'll, we'll stop there for just a moment. The chapter opens with when 
John's ministry began by identifying a number of officials who were in power slash office at the time. And next we will see how John's ministry began in the second half of verse 2 when the word of God came to John the son of Zacharias in the wilderness. So let's start with the when. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Now here's a fun note. Um, the Sea of Galilee was also known as the Sea of Tiberius because they, the, the Roman occupiers at the time renamed it. Of course, the Jewish people still called it the Sea of Galilee, but sometimes, every now and then in Scripture, it is referred to as the Sea of Tiberius. And just since there's only like two other Star Trek fans in here since Aaron didn't come today, James T. Kirk, his middle name was Tiberius, no relation to Caesar. Um, his 15th year was around 29 AD, give or take. Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea from 26 to 36 AD. So we're still in the right time frame. The three tetrarchs that are named, right? Now there actually would have been four. We just don't have the fourth named here for us because the word tetrarch means ruler of a fourth part. They all came into office upon the death of Herod the Great, which we talked about uh, uh, last week. Herod the Great died in or around 4 AD. Therefore, um, two of the kids at least, Herod, which is named here is actually Herod Antipas, and then Philip, whose name was actually Herod Philip. Herod is kind of like George Foreman. He named all of his kids after him. You guys know about that, right? That George Foreman named all of his kids George. They all go by their middle names, but Herod was the same way. He named all of his kids Herod and then gave them other names, Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and so forth. That's the ones he didn't kill. Because Herod, not a nice guy. Therefore, those two, along with Lysanias, were three of the Tetrarchs. They would all have begun their reign when Herod the Great died in 4 AD. Now, Herod Antipas, who's listed here, reigned until his death in 39 AD. And you can read about his death in Acts chapter 12. It was not pleasant. He accepted worship from the people when they proclaimed, oh, it's not the voice of a man, it's the voice of God, and Herod received that, then God struck him with an intestinal worm thing, and the worms ate him and he died from the inside out. Does not sound like a pleasant way to die. That's why you don't take God's glory for yourself. Philip, Herod Philip, this one reigned until his death in 34 AD, so we're still in the right time frame. Lysanias, again, started in 4 AD, died in 36 AD, his, well, okay, the, the Herod who got eaten by worms, that's a pretty great way to die as far as the Bible is concerned. But Lysanias, um, he died because uh, Mark Anthony killed him. Mark Anthony killed him because Cleopatra didn't like him. So Cleopatra got Mark Anthony to kill him. That's recorded for us by the Jewish historian Josephus who worked for Rome. So I say all of that, and I'm not quite done, but because all of that, it all lines up, doesn't it? It's all right there. There was a time where people said Pontius Pilate didn't exist, where they said he was a figment of the Bible writer's imagination, that they made him up because they needed a Roman bad guy, which is great until archaeology proved all the naysayers wrong, because archaeology found a stone dedicated to Pontius Pilate, the governor of Judea. And we, of course, have historical writings from authors like Josephus that have recorded it. Um, now, one thing I will point out uh, before we move on to Annas and Caiaphas was that there are many things when we look at the Bible and then we look at history as recorded outside the Bible that there are some who want to cast doubt on Lysanias. Now, I want you to think about the craziness of that, right? We know when Caesar Tiberius was in office. Historical fact. We know when uh, Herod Antipas was in office. Historical fact. We know when Herod Philip was in office. Historical fact. 
We're going to get to Caiaphas and Annas in a minute. Their time frame in office as high priest, historical fact, no doubt whatsoever. But someone will say, oh yeah, but this Lysanias guy we're not sure about, so we can't believe the Bible. You know what they say about excuses? They're like armpits. Everybody's got two in this tent. Because people come up with stuff like that as an excuse not to believe. But they're wrong. The dates concerning the other four rulers, they're solidly, they're solid historically, but there is enough evidence concerning Lysanias' reign that we have no need to question or doubt God's word whatsoever. So then we get to Annas and Caiaphas. Annas was the proper high priest. When we get as far as Jesus' trial, um, well, multiple trials, he actually had six trials in one night, but when we get that far, we'll talk about all the illegality of all of that. Uh, but he appeared before both Annas the high priest and Caiaphas the high priest. Here's another place where people, oh, see, two high priests mentioned. Can't be. Well, of course it can. All you got to do is read a little history. So Annas was the proper high priest, came into office as high priest in 6 AD, and he was officially high priest until 15 AD. Now, Rome did not like Annas. Annas was outspoken against Rome. He was very loyal to, uh, to, to the law and to the nation of Israel, and Rome didn't like that. So they took Annas' son-in-law, Caiaphas, and they appointed him as high priest, and he was officially high priest from 15 till 36. But here's the thing. Jewish families respected the hierarchy within their family. Caiaphas, no, Annas being his father-in-law, Caiaphas would have submitted to him. And so when we see them both listed, it's because Caiaphas was high priest on paper in order to keep Rome happy. But Annas never abandoned the office because that's not how the Jewish law worked. The only way a high priest left office is if they died. So he remained high priest even though his son-in-law was kind of his spokesman to keep Rome happy. Jesus will, of course, as I mentioned earlier, appear before both of them. Now, I want to know one more thing and then we'll move on to the how of the beginning of John's ministry. So I said all of that. John started his ministry around 29 AD. I could have just said that, but that wouldn't have been anywhere near as much fun. But all of these people mentioned, right? We have Caesar, the ruler of the known world. We have multiple tetrarchs or kings of a fourth part of an area. We have two high priests, Annas and Caiaphas listed. We have all of these people listed. And God did not reveal his word to any of them. Who did he reveal his word to? Well, a guy wearing camel's hair and eating bugs in the desert. So that's how it began. It said, John the Baptist received the word of God while he was in the wilderness. He received the word of God. What was the word that God gave him? Well, it was a ministry of repentance. It was a ministry to prepare the way for Jesus, which we're going to get into in a little bit. But at this point, the Jewish people had not received a word from God for over 400 years. The last time the Jewish people heard anything is in what we call the book of Malachi. Now, there are some books, and some of them appear in the Apocrypha, which is an additional dozen or so books that you will find in the Roman Catholic Bible. Uh, the word Apocrypha, it's Latin, it means doubted truth, because even when they put it in there, they knew that those books weren't necessarily inspired. But, they put them in there as a response to the Protestant Reformation, which was a huge mistake on their part. Uh, but however, even though the apocryphal books are not inspired, they are not what we would say as biblical, they are not the revealed word of God, they do contain some interesting history. For example, the Festival of Lights, also known as Hanukkah, 
comes out of First and Second Maccabees, which is part of the Apocrypha. All right, so interesting history, but not divinely inspired scripture. So you can keep that in mind. But as a result of that, once Malachi closed out his book, 400 years of silence. We actually call it the silent period. Until John, the last Old Testament prophet, shows up to prepare the way for Jesus' ministry. Now, he was in the wilderness. And I love this word, uh, wilderness. It means oremos, oremos. So it doesn't necessarily mean he was walking around in a forest or he was walking around in a desert. What it does mean is that the place that he was was desolate or solitary. So it might not have been that he was 100 miles away from all civilization. What it meant was he was alone. He was alone. And who was he alone with? He was alone with God. And I think we, I know I do, and I'm assuming you do, I better, you better. You don't even know what I'm going to say, but you better. That we want to hear from God, right? Anybody? We want to hear God's voice. Maybe it's because we need direction in our life. Maybe it's because we need comfort. Maybe it's because we need fix something. Because, right, we need everything from him. But we need to hear from him. And I think, unfortunately, a lot of the times that we don't hear from him is because of the distractions around us. I do. I, I in the morning... I'll, I'll get up, I'll be, I'll be reading my Bible, right? Leah's gone for work because she goes in earlier than I do. Typically, um, sometimes Hannah's gone for work by then. Lydia's still asleep. Um, and I got the house, it's nice and quiet. I'll get my Bible out and I'll start reading and I'll want to listen and then someone will text me. And I'll turn my phone on silent and then I'll throw my phone. No, I don't do that, they're too expensive. But you get the point. All right, so what if I don't have any external distractions? You ever tried to just sit down and be quiet before God? What happens? Oh, don't, don't forget, you've got this meeting today. Oh, don't forget, you've got to go, oh, did you, did you remember to pay that bill? Oh, and then it just starts. Why? Well, because we have an enemy who does not want us to be alone with our God. He doesn't. And even if it's not our enemy, if you're anything like me, I have a really hard time shutting my brain. I just do. Now, for those of you who know me, you might think my brain is off most of the time. But I have a hard time quieting my, my mind. But that's the idea of the Eremos. It's not simply being physically away from other people, although that can be helpful. It's the idea of being alone with God so that we can be more aware of his presence, so that we can experience his love and his joy. And so I encourage everyone to incorporate the practice of silence and solitude into your spiritual life. It is not easy to do. I know that. Now, you probably all remember, it's been almost a year, give or take, when I first told you that I was going to start incorporating silence and solitude into my life. It was something that I didn't do well. And I told you I was going to start with five minutes a day. And once I got that five minutes down, I was going to start adding time to it. As soon as I get that five minutes down, I'm going to start adding time to it. Because it's hard for me. But I tell you, uh, I, I, I try to do it every day. I'm not successful, right? It's not a legalism thing. It's just something I really want for me and my relationship with the Lord. And probably two times a week, maybe three, I'm actually successful for five minutes where I'm quiet. I actually shut the noises out, and, and, and I just get to sit there. You know what? Sometimes God speaks to me, and it's just encouragement. Sometimes I just get to sit there like, you know how you... You lower yourself into a nice hot bath 
after you sprinkle in your, your eucalyptus and menthol Epsom salt? I take girly baths. I got no problem with it. I smell good, too. But right, you, you, and then you're just kind of surrounded by the water and the aroma and all of that. And oh, that's what it feels like. Now, honestly, I wish I could have it 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But I'm nowhere near that discipline. Um, but a couple times a week, I get that because I'm, by his grace, able to shut everything else out. And it is incredible. That's where John was. That's where John was. You want a ministry? You want to live out the purpose of your life in such a way that it impacts people the way John the Baptist did? It starts with getting alone with God. Verse 3. So we get into John's message and purpose, which we have talked about because this has all come up before. But Luke brings it up again, so we're going to talk about it again. So he went into all the region, verse 3, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. And as, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough ways smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So we saw this when we began the book of Luke, when Zacharias was told John's purpose by the angel Gabriel. Gabriel actually said this. And when he was born, Zechariah prophesied over his own son, reconfirmed his ministry. Now we're 29 or so years later, and we see John walking into the purpose for which he was created. Oh, how beautiful is that? Walking into that purpose. So his message, very simple. He preached a baptism of repentance for the remission or forgiveness of sins. His message was simple, and we're going to see it. Because he confronted people concerning their sin, he baptized them, encouraging them to turn from their sin toward God. And this was all in preparation for the ministry of Jesus. Now, something that many of us probably get in our minds is that baptism is a uniquely Christian thing. Because we are taught in the New Testament, right? We've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. We get dunked underwater. We should be baptized. But... We didn't come up with it. You used to get baptized when you converted to Judaism. That was one of the things that they would do with proselytes. Uh, if you had a Gentile who wanted to be Jewish by faith, not necessarily by birth, and don't get me wrong, the Jewish people made this very difficult because they didn't like people joining their faith. It boggles my mind. But one of the things they would do when you would finally go through Whatever the period the rabbi set, you did everything the rabbi said, uh, you know, which would include things like being circumcised if you hadn't been, learning the Old Testament law, so on, learning the various prayers that you would need. When you got to that point, they would literally baptize you. And when you got baptized in Judaism, it was essentially to wash off your Gentileness. That's what it was for, right? Okay, well, you've made it this far. Now we've got to get the stink of being a Gentile off of you. So they would, they would baptize you. So John's baptism wasn't unfamiliar. Or the idea of being baptized to leave behind something old in order to get something new or move into something new would not have been foreign to his audience. Uh, although it wasn't terribly common. It became very common afterwards because we use baptism as an identification of ourselves with the death and resurrection of Christ. Baptism doesn't save us. We're saved by faith through grace, not of works lest anyone should boast. But the inward reality when we come to Jesus is that our old person has died. Behold, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. You know, all things have become new. You know the verse. Old things have passed away, all things have become new. Right? That takes place on a spiritual level. And then baptism is just a public display of what's already happened. And that moves us in, then, to his purpose. 
And Luke quotes Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. A prophecy of the one who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Now we know this prophecy is in reference to Elijah, who will come before Jesus returned. But Jesus applied it to John the Baptist when he said Elijah had already come in Matthew 17, 12. Gabriel applied it to John the Baptist when he said he would go forth in the spirit and power of Elijah when he was talking to Zacharias in Luke 1.15. So this is a fun thing we have in prophecy and when the interpretation of prophecy. Because interpreting prophecy, well, not always all that easy. And that's one of the reasons that we tend to get stuck on it is because we have a thing in prophecy known as dual fulfillment. Dual fulfillment. And this happens when a prophecy has, guess what? Two fulfillments, right? Aptly named, real fancy. And Isaiah 43 through 5 is an example from that. From our perspective, right here and right now, this prophecy was fulfilled in John the Baptist. Right? He came as the voice of one crying in the wilderness to prepare the way of the Lord to make his path straight. That every valley would be filled, every mountain brought low, that the crooked places shall be made straight, the rough ways made smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. John the Baptist did that, pointing to Jesus, the salvation of God. Now, from our perspective, this prophecy is yet to be fulfilled, because it will also be fulfilled when Elijah comes as the forerunner for Jesus' second coming. Now we see this in verse 5. Luke left out verse 5 of that passage in Isaiah. And it says, And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. That speaks of the return of Jesus Christ. Luke left that off. Because uh, uh, John the Baptist, that wasn't his ministry. His ministry was to announce the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. Elijah will come back, and Elijah will announce it, doing the same thing that John did, and then when Jesus returns, right, go read Revelation 19, one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture, right, we got white horses, we got Jesus on the, on the, the big horse in front, I don't know if he's big, um, right, flying down, the enemies of God gathered against him, and he speaks from the sword that comes out of his mouth, he speaks, and all of his enemies are defeated, like that. That's it. He wins. And you know, I have a theory. I have a lot of theories that are probably wrong. But I have a theory about what he says. Because we don't know. It just says that he defeats them from the sword that comes out of his mouth, which we know is the word of God. But what, what word does he speak that defeats all of his enemies? My guess is he says, I win. I can't prove it. I have no nothing to back that up. It's probably going to be something much more grand than that. But if it were me, I would have to be snarky. And I would say something like that. So verse 5 speaks of Jesus' return. Now, preparing the way was often done before the arrival of a king or dignitary so that all would see the salvation of the Lord. And that again, of course, is referring to to Jesus. Now, something that dawned on me, and I always find this interesting when this happens, because I've read this passage a number of times over the last week, getting ready for today, and, and studied through it, and, and all of that, and then when I was reading it, something clicked, which has never clicked before, so that's always fun, right? And when I first read it, I was like, Lord, please let me remember, and he did. The valleys shall be filled. The mountains and hills brought low, the crooked places made straight, and the rough ways made smooth. All of a sudden, it dawned on me that that could be referring to the new heavens and the new earth that God will create after destroying the old heavens and the old earth. And the reason that that dawned on me is because our world topographically looks the way it does because of the flood. And the flood happened because of sin. Here, 
there's a restoration. I don't know. I, I think that's kind of cool. You can think on it. Now, I do want to talk about one more thing, and then I promise we'll move forward. And that is that John walked into the purpose that he was given. Throughout Scripture, we have a multitude of verses that tell us about our God-given purpose. God told Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1.5 that he had ordained him as a prophet before he had ever been conceived or born. Psalm 139 tells us that God put us together in our mother's womb and knew all of our days before any of them ever happened. Ephesians 2.10 tells us that God has made us uniquely for a purpose which he wants us to walk out. Now, John knew his purpose. And we see him walking it out. If you know your God-given purpose, let me encourage you to either begin or continue walking it out. If you don't know your purpose, then I highly encourage you to seek God in his word, to seek him with fasting and prayer, to seek him with people who you trust, people in the Lord whom you trust, so that you can talk with them and, and mull over these various things. And you can always sign up for our next Purpose Focused Discipleship class. The last one is today, don't forget. But in a month or so, we're going to launch, I'll put up a sign up for the next one, and we'll do it again. Because I guarantee you are not here on accident. No such thing. There's no such thing as accidents in God's kingdom. And I guarantee you have a purpose. And I guarantee that God has a plan for your life. I don't care where you're at in that portion of your life. It doesn't matter if you're young or you're old or, or if you're tired or whatever. God has a purpose. And you want to know how I know that? Because you're still breathing. When God is done with you, you will stop breathing. And he'll bring you home. But you're still breathing, so he has a reason for you to be here. And I say this a lot. I don't think you're in this building today by accident. I don't think you're in Gunnison in 2023 by accident. I don't think any of it's an accident. God does this on purpose. Because he wants to use you where you're at. Verse 7. And he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers! I love that. I think I might start my messages like that. Everybody be okay like just coming to church? Brood of vipers! Who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. Verse 8, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down. And thrown into the fire. So the people asked him, saying, What shall we do? And he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. Likewise, the soldiers asked, What shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely and be content with your wages. So here's John's message. Right Here we actually see him preaching his message of repentance. I love that he doesn't water his message down. He doesn't make it easier to swallow. He doesn't make it seeker-friendly. He doesn't avoid talking about sin so he won't offend anyone. No. John received the word of God and he faithfully delivered it to the people. Now I'm going to challenge you with this. Brothers and sisters, we have received the word of God. We are called to faithfully deliver it to the world around us. Now, does that mean that you have to do what I do? No, because God didn't call you to do what I do. Well, maybe he did. I don't know. But if he did, we need to talk. But God probably called you to do that in a different way than he called me to do it. But it doesn't change that he still calls us all to do it. To share the love of Jesus Christ with those around us. To share the truth of his word. And stop me if I start getting too angry. Because there are too many people 
who A, call themselves pastors and they are not. And there are too many people who call themselves Christians who I don't think are because they refuse to preach the truth of God's word. Well, I don't want to tell that person that they're sinning because I love them. No, if you love them, you will tell them. Because not telling them will lead them to hell. And if you love them, you don't want them to go there. Oh, but what if they get angry with me? Good! They need to get angry with you because that means the Spirit is convicting them. What if they don't talk to me anymore? I know some of the people in my life that might not be so bad. But what if they don't talk to me anymore? Okay, but did you tell them the truth? Well, but what if, you know, they came into church. I'm just going to keep the message nice and light to make sure they come back. But what if they don't come back? What if that's the only time they ever hear the gospel? You have failed. Not you. You're not pastors. I am. Now, you are ambassadors for Christ. And you will, by God's grace, have opportunities to share the love of Jesus with people, to share the gospel, to tell them that Jesus died to save them from their sins. You need to be faithful to do it. I tell people this a lot. If me preaching the truth of the gospel offends you, I don't really care. I love you enough to tell you the truth. And if you ever go to another church, right, you decide, I'm sick of the fat guy, I'm going somewhere else. Well, I know several other pastors in town are fat too. But, uh, you know, maybe you exchange me as a fat guy for a different fat guy. Um, but I know for a fact that there are not very many churches in this town that are faithful to the word of God. I just know that. And I'm not saying this to be judgmental. God will deal with them, and I feel very, very bad for them. Because that's going to be a rough day. But anytime you go to a church, I don't care where it is, whether you're on vacation or whether you get sick of me or however it works out, if you go to a church and they are not faithful to teach this book and they are not faithful to preach the gospel and they are not faithful to deal with sin, it's not a church. Get out. And I've told you over and over again, if the day ever comes when I do that, fire me. So let's look a little bit more at his message. He calls those who come out a brood of vipers. I like that. It's essentially the same as calling them children of the devil in the Jewish culture because, hey, who deceived Eve? Satan in the form of a snake. So in Jewish culture, if you called someone a snake or a brood of snakes, the children of snakes, which is exactly what this is, he was saying, who told you children of Satan, to come out here and flee from the wrath to come. That's the faithful preaching of the gospel, because that's what we're saved from, is the wrath of God. Next, he told them, don't rely on Abraham, right? If God wanted to, he could turn these stones into children of Abraham. And what he was confronting there was their reliance on tradition. What he's confronting is, I'm a Jewish person. My grandfather was a Jewish person. I was you know, circumcised on the eighth day, if you're a guy. I, I go to synagogue. I keep the Sabbath. Clearly, I'm going to be okay. What did Jesus say? Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Lord, didn't we feed the poor in your name? Lord, didn't we do all these great things? Depart from me. I never knew you. One of my favorites. This has happened to me a few times. I'll talk to somebody and I'll try to share the gospel with them. Oh, my grandfather was a pastor. Good, he's probably in heaven. What about you? Well, you know, my, my family has always believed. Okay, tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, I go to church on Christmas. I don't care. Tell me about your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if they can't, I'm guessing that they don't really have one. And that's where our job begins. We read a quote, and I should have saved it on my phone, but we read a quote this morning uh, in Sunday school that essentially said, 
you, if you're a Christian, you're, well, it, no, that's not how it started. I should have saved it. I told you. But it said you're either a missionary or you're the mission field. Did you write it down? You are either a missionary or the mission field. Well, that's what I just said. <laughs> well, I thought you had the rest of it. By Lauren Cunningham. And the whole purpose of it is, is if you're not a missionary, if you're not seeking to lead people to Christ, chances are you need to be led to Christ yourself. And finally, he points out that judgment was already beginning. The axe, the tree, the fire, that illustration is a picture of judgment. So then the people begin to ask him questions. What do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And this is what he tells them, right? Is that they should be generous and compassionate with what they have, the clothing and food. Then he tells them that they should turn from their sin and act rightly. He tells this first to the tax collector, then he tells this to the soldiers, right? And he, uh, that's, that's all of them, right? You, you want to do what's right, turn from your sin, and then start doing the right thing. It's that simple, right? It's that simple, right? We all know, yeah. <laughs> but this, my dear brothers and sisters, is the fruit of repentance. This is what is defined for us by John the Baptist and the word of God here, the fruit or evidence of repentance is always change. It's that simple. I am so sorry that I got drunk again. And then the next night you're in the bar getting drunk again. Were, were you sorry? I'm so sorry I lied to you. But I have oceanfront property in Arizona if you're looking. Why we're told in Ephesians chapter 4, the whole passage is 25 through 32. I encourage you to read it all. But right in the middle it says, Let him steal, or let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. If there is no evidence of change, then there has not been true. If you're a thief and you say you've repented but you continue to steal, you haven't repented. But this is the beauty. Is that the Holy Spirit walks us through repentance. Then Jesus through the Holy Spirit is the one who brings about this change in us. We do not do it alone. We cannot do it alone. Jesus told us in John 15:5, apart from me you can do nothing. I don't know about you, but I have tried to polish. Right? Tried to polish it up. Tried to make it look good on the outside. But when I tried to do it on my own, it didn't work. When I tried to do it on my own, I failed. I fell. I went backwards. But then you get to a point where you're like, I'm not sorry because I got caught. I'm not sorry because now people think differently about me. I'm not sorry for all of those things, but I'm sorry because I have hurt the heart of God. And I don't want to do that anymore. Or I'm sorry because I've hurt the people I love. And I don't want to do that anymore. And I can't change by myself. And so you surrender to him. And in Christ, true repentance with true and lasting change is possible. Now, does that mean that each of us moves towards perfection? Sort of. Um, but we're not going to move, we're not going to be perfect here. Now you got to get that out of your mind. Uh, I made a comment to one of the kids the other day. At Lee, I said something about being fat. And they said, oh, you're not fat, Pastor Jason. And I said, well, the mirror says differently. And it was great. The looks like, Huh? The mirror says differently. What do you mean? When I look in the mirror, I see a fat guy. Sin is no different. That's what James tells us. 
you look in the word of God and you close it and you turn away and there's no difference in your life, you've looked in the mirror and as soon as you turn around, you forgot what you look like. Doesn't matter how many times I look in the mirror. Doesn't matter how shiny my head is or how much dye I put in my beard so you can't see quite how gray it's gotten. I look in the mirror, I'm still a sinner. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I am a sinner who has been forgiven. I'm a sinner who has been set free. Do I walk that out perfectly every day? No. I wish I did. But I don't. So you know what I do? When I mess up, I run to the Father. I fall into grace. I'm done with the hype. And I love it. Because he doesn't look at me and go, oh, you stupid kid, I can't believe you did that again. No, he looks at me and he says, I love you. That was stupid, but I love you. And I forgive you. Over and over again. So as we close, I would like for us to notice the progression of John's ministry. And I have to tell you, I knew this conclusion was coming and I've worked really hard not to say it until now. Because I didn't I wanted to wait. It began with John being in the Aramos. He was alone with God and he received the word of God. There's a lot of ways that God speaks to us, primarily through this book. And if he speaks to us in some other way, it will agree with this book. But sometimes he does speak to us in that still, small voice. Sometimes the Holy Spirit looks a lot like my wife. Sometimes the Holy Spirit opens a door that I didn't expect to open, or he closes one that I thought should have remained. But God will speak to us. We have to be alone with him for that to happen. That's what John did. Then, John was faithful to walk out the purpose for which God had created him. And then as a result, we see the outcome. We see what God did through John's ministry as people began to repent of their sins. And I don't think this is any different for us. If there's anybody listening who is not a Christian, if you do not know Jesus, first, you listen to the Holy Spirit who draws you to God and will lead you to receiving the free gift of salvation in Jesus, which will then lead to true repentance and lasting God-empowered change in your life. So if there's anybody who needs that here or online or listens to this recording at some other time, get a hold of us, leave a message. I don't care how you do it. Let us introduce you to the only one who can save you. For those of us who are saved, First, we intentionally get alone with God, and we listen to him. When we do, he will reveal himself to us in that time through his word, through the leading of his Holy Spirit. When he does, we can then walk out the purpose which he created us for, and then we can see the outcomes he brings about as we are faithful to do what he has called us and empowered us to do. You see, we are not responsible for the outcome. Right? Don't ever put the outcome on yourself. If you do, you're going to drive yourself insane. We're not responsible for the outcome. What we are responsible for is to walk in obedience to the Lord by the power of his spirit and the guidance of his word. So I always like to ask questions just so we can all be a little bit tortured before we leave. The first one, is there anyone here who has not listened to the word of God calling them to repentance in a relationship with Jesus Christ that will bring about salvation, forgiveness, and purpose? As I mentioned a moment ago, if there's anybody listening, I don't care when or where you hear this, get in touch with us, visit our website, newsongunnison.net, visit our Facebook page. If you're watching on Facebook, you're already there. Leave me a comment. We will get in touch with you and help you know our Savior. For the rest of us, those of us who are followers of and apprentices to Jesus, I have three questions. This is always fun. I'll tell you, as I'm finishing up my sermon, I get to this part, and I put, I have two questions. And then I wrote three questions. I went, oh, I better change that. So I had to go back up and say, I have three questions. Number one, is there any sin in your life 
for which you have not truly repented, which is evidenced by a change in your life. And I'm sorry. I don't like asking you that question because I don't like it when God asks me that question. But it's there. It's something we need to deal with before God. Now, you don't have to come tell me, oh, Jason, this is what I do. I mean, if you need to unburden, I'm, I'm here to listen. But I'm not, you know, right? We're not, we don't do the priest thing. We go to God, we confess to him, and he forgives us. But I know. I have little pet sins I don't like to let go of. Oh, it's really not all that bad. Yes, it is. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The next one, is there anyone here to whom God is speaking about something that he is calling you to do? To walk out the purpose for which you have create, been created, but you have not begun yet. I'm not here to judge or put you down or anything of the sort. There have been times when I've tried to run from my calling. It didn't work. I'm very grateful that it didn't. But I know the only excuse you have is if you stop breathing before you have a chance to pray about this. Please don't. But I know God has you here for a reason. And I know God wants you to walk that reason out. And if you're anything like me, sometimes there's roadblocks. Sometimes there's things that make us stumble. Sometimes, most of you already know this. For me, I quit ministry uh, six and a half years ago because of the way a church treated me. I quit. I told God I'm done. I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. And he's gracious. He said, okay. A year later, he said, are you done whining? It's time to go back to work. I needed the time, and then I needed you, because this is where he brought me. I love that church, which is made up of you guys. But I know you wouldn't be here if you, if you didn't have a reason for it. So ask him and let him give you the grace and strength to walk it out. Finally, is there anyone here who doesn't know what that purpose is? And I get that. I've been there too. So when I was a teenager, I was going to be a rock star. Still kind of have that hope in the back of my head. If that doesn't work out because I'm getting so old, senior pickleball tour, I'm good with two, right? You guys will have to give me one weekend off a month to go play tournaments in 20 years. But I was convinced I'd be a rock star. Jesus grabbed a hold of me, saved me. And I said, awesome, I'm a Christian. I'll be a Christian rock star. Anybody want to guess how that turned out? But he showed me what he wanted me to do. It took time. And if you don't know, I encourage you to seek him through the word. Seek him through prayer, through fasting, through the oremos. Get wise counsel so that he can show you what he wants you to do. Let's pray. Lord, you are so good. And we are so thankful for how much you love us. And I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful that you surround me with my brothers and sisters who love me and whom I love in return. I'm thankful, Lord, that none of us are here by accident. And I praise you for the example you give us in your word. Help us, Father, as we, we think and pray over those questions we ended with. Lord, to bring them before you and in humility to listen to your answer. Then, by your grace, we would walk them out. May you be glorified in all that we do, Lord. In Jesus' name.